0: I think that there's a lot of work that needs to happen in this country to actually eradicate the systems that harm us. And I want conditions that allow me to go and organize for that. That doesn't happen under Trump. Period. End of story.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season three premiere of Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April.
2: And I'm Jonathan.
1: We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do.
2: On today's episode, we have a packed conversation with thought leader, activist, and educator Brittany Packnett Cunningham before that, um, instead of what's on your mind, April, it's been a hot minute. What's been up? You know,
1: it has been a hot (laughs) pandemic. (laughs) Quarterly summer. Yes, it's been basically the entire summer that since we've, you know, caught up with our listeners. It's been something, John, I'll tell you that we are. We, myself and Jubilee, our sister, are, oh, we're in a new home.
2: So, so hold on a second. We need to tell our listeners about this because this is, you just say this like humbly, like it's just like a normal thing, but you bought, you, April, purchased a home.
1: I did. I How old are you? How old are you? Okay, first of all.
2: No, how old are you? Tell me.
1: I'm 27. She's. You are
2: 27. You purchased a home. I'm, uh, you know, Zoom clapping right now. <laughs> you can't hear it, but I'm Zoom clapping.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I have, I've had a lot of help. Um, but yes, I'm very proud. I purchased my first home and Jubilee and I moved in in August. So we've been here for about a month and it is just swell. I'll so say. So this
2: is still in Philadelphia, in the city.
1: We are still in Philadelphia. Um, you told we me just, it was
2: by your alma mater.
1: Yes, uh, it, is, it is near Temple University. So we basically just crossed over Center City from South Philadelphia to North Philadelphia. And yeah, we live a, a few blocks from Temple University. And it's been great. So look, we
2: are... I'll share some news with our listeners as well. You know, you and I have discussed this, but only very recently... Um, Since I'm working remotely 100% of the time in quarantine, I'm going to move back to Philly, um, at least for a little bit. And I'm trying to live in that zoo that you guys are having. So
1: um, that's going to be fun, too. We have a spare bedroom that is open to you. And you know what? Why not just make one big Perkins family zoo? We could actually charge admission.
2: I was going to say like three siblings who haven't lived together since high school, three dogs and three cats. That's what could go wrong.
1: Yeah. No, I think honestly, I'm just going to start setting up video cameras and just recording because these are, these are moments that we're not going to want to forget, or maybe we will want to forget them very quickly after they happen. Either way, it'll be entertaining. We'll be able to delete them. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, okay. So as much as our listeners would love to, uh, here, you know continue to be regaled by stories of our personal lives and pets uh drama. We should probably talk about what's going on in the world, so um you know, we just passed the two hundred and two thousand amer- confirmed American deaths from covid Mention that casually because we are in the upside down, and it's hard to even process that as a real number um 200 it's it's you know 50 60 70 I forget what the actual number is but that many 9-11s you know back to back to back to back to back and it's just uh, so that's just sort of something we're still all dealing with um I know things in Philly have sort of settled down a little bit in terms of COVID but
1: well you know it's seemingly it's you know honestly it's sort of the new normal yeah. So it and and unfortunately, people dying is the new normal. So you know, once you get past one hundred fifty thousand people, and then you know, someone says one hundred sixty thousand, you're like, okay, well, one hundred seventy thousand, right. and what's then you the, realize 10, it's like more? these are individual right. people's lives that Families. are lost by the tens of thousands. I just keep thinking like, April, like. We were so devastated when
2: dad died. That, like, changed, you know, you were four, that changed the trajectory of your whole life, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you had a father. And 200,000 people have had family members that died. Like, they're not all fathers, but, like,
1: it's a generation. A ton of, actually, generational trauma.
2: Probably most of them are because it affects men more harshly and older men, so they're probably mostly fathers actually, um which is yeah I yeah just, we
1: we have uh, i I feel for particularly this newest youngest generation, yeah, this is what they know
2: this is what they know now born
1: yeah. into trauma, and for black and brown kids, this is just an additional. Trauma that they'll have to live with for the rest of their lives, on top of being black in America, well, and I just can't imagine what in thirty years, in fifty years, what will this have changed for them in remember their lives?
2: When we, yeah, right. Like so, remember you? So you say you're a five year old or six year old. Remember when I started kindergarten as a young black kid online. You'll have those memories, mommy. Why were we starting school online? Oh, because we were in a pandemic what mm-hmm. that will be the answer to that question,
1: yeah, why can't in 10 I hug years
2: when your kid asks you?
1: you know why can't I hug Grandma? Why right. can't I go play with the neighbor? and you know how do you explain to a child that that's a the neighbor is not a bad person anymore? You just can never talk to them in person right. and right. for the foreseeable future, and we cross the street on the sidewalk not because we're afraid of these people coming toward us, but because what they're possibly carrying a deadly disease, a virus, great. That's that really difficult, you know, to swallow.
2: like. Yeah. <sighs> it's not even going to get into the political aspects of what's been happening with Trump cuz we just don't have the time. There's literally a like time limit of the episode length we can <laughs> make these episodes, and so I don't think we should get into it. Uh I uh I suspect we uh will be getting into it with our guests pretty heavily. So, um we, you know, knowing, knowing what, you know, how political Brittany is. And so, and, and how much of an activist she is, but, you know, I just feel like April, I'm excited to be back in Philadelphia with my family. Um, I'm nervous because I don't want to travel across the country, you know, drive across the country in a pandemic. Um, But, you know, I, this summer has been so trying and there's been so much repetitive trauma it it seems like it's daily it seems like every time I turn on the news something else so there's some other reminder about how black lives don't matter um, and how we're valued less um.
1: yeah I mean I guess the most recent example of that trauma is the outcome of the Breonna Taylor case and the decision to only charge one of the police officers of the three with wanton endangerment because he shot into the neighbors walls, um apartments, the neighbors of Brianna Taylor.
2: I wanna he, be so I wanna make something really clear. He shot through Brianna Taylor's wall, through the room, into the next wall. And through that wall, which is into her neighbor's apartment. So it was like it wasn't like he went and shot just into the neighbor's apartment, it went through Brianna Taylor's apartment and into right. theirs.
1: Like and so what this so clearly and like overtly tells us, the what these charges tell us is where the value lies. Right. Not in the bullets that were shot into Brianna Taylor's body, which killed her. Seven of them. But the bullets that were shot into the walls of the neighboring apartment.
2: Which was, is uh, owned by a white family.
1: I struggle to see where we, I struggle to even Right. know how to set that in my mind how do we how did we get here
2: so look april there is so i dove so deep into this case because i think like lawyer jonathan became obsessed with it and part of it is like i'm out here on the west coast and by myself and just getting obsessed with stuff like because i need to occupy myself i think but like this is so messed up this case is so messed up it is like no knock warrant you know, meaning the cops don't have to announce themselves. They can just break the door in. Um, but being executed by the warrant being executed by police officers who don't know anything about it. So just being called in to say, Hey, we have to execute this warrant. I have this piece of paper. Let's go do it. They don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, New York times interviewed a bunch of neighbors, 11 out of the 12 closest neighbors said they did not hear the police announce themselves. One neighbor said that they did. Um, (laughs) <laughs> to me, if you, if most of the people didn't hear you announce yourself, then you didn't announce yourself because that's the definition of announcing yourself is people hearing it, you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like something's not funny unless people laugh because that's how you can tell if it's funny, you know, like right. and if no one laughs, I mean, it's not fucking funny, you know, <laughs> like, and so that was the justification for them being able to come in the door. We saw this, this, the... State prosecutor in Kentucky gave a a press conference saying this, that they announced themselves. This was confirmed by a witness. He didn't mention that it was one witness of 12. um, Got through the door, says they immediately, you know, say that they immediately started receiving fire. um, And if you let Brianna's boyfriend tell it, who was inside with her, he was terrified. He thought this was people coming into his home, breaking the door in. And he was right, you know. Right. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know any young black man with his who would have his girlfriend and her younger child, her baby child in the apartment who would knowingly shoot at police officers. I can't imagine that, you know. Yeah, no. Um, so in my mind, it's like it's not he of course he didn't know that they were police because no won't no one would ever do that. No one would ever just shoot at police, you know, like. Um, and so. Who, who who isn't, who aren't otherwise carrying out a crime or something, right? Like, it's right, right. one thing if you're robbing a bank. They were asleep, you know? Um, and it just, yeah, they fired a total of, I think, 32 shots, 32 rounds, which, I mean, depending to me, depending on their what types of gun they have, that means they had to, one of them at least had to reload, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, they killed Brianna Taylor, and it's been, that was back in March, you know? And so we're in, it's about to be October by the time you hear this,
1: and nothing is being done about bullets shot into Breonna Taylor's body. But, like, it just makes me so crazy, like, and, and like, it drives me, like, lawyer crazy for some reason, because I can't get over it. Like,
2: blatantly, this guy is like, well, this AG, uh, Attorney General, we are barred from bringing charges against... These officers, he said, we are barred from bringing charges. When have you heard a prosecutor say we're barred from bringing right. charges, right? Um, just, They just don't use that kind of language. Um, Because it was self-defense, they're saying. he They were shooting back. And it's like, Brianna was killed, but she wasn't posing a threat in any way. She didn't shoot at the police officers mistakenly. So that's, A, you can't bring that claim against someone who isn't causing a threat, right? Like, right. you can't say they were acting in self-defense against this person who they killed because no, they weren't. Um, but also self-defense, that's a defense. You don't, that doesn't right. bar the prosecutor from bringing charges. That's a defense you, you, you charge plead them. at trial. Right. You say, you charge I'm not them. guilty of this because we, we were acting in self-defense. You don't say we can't be charged with it. What are you talking about? Because like, they
1: possibly have a defense that they would bring.
2: Right, right. That that is not, you don't have to, you don't have to have a case without beyond a reasonable doubt in your mind proven already to bring charges, there's a a saying that all prosecutors or that all, most lawyers know that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, that just means the prosecutors are in charge of the grand jury. So they show them whatever evidence they want. Right. So they can lead a a grand jury to prosecute someone because they just show them evidence that makes the person look bad. It's very unfair in my mind. You're not allowed to defend yourself. You're not allowed to, but like, the person that looks bad in this situation is the cops. So Mm -hmm. we're just not used to seeing cops being the ones that are prosecuted. And so like, I can't imagine a prosecutor standing up defending, not bringing charges against a drug dealer. Right. 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 Or a bank robber or a rapist. You just don't, that's just, you don't, prosecutors don't defend not bringing charges. That's, they don't defend it. It's the opposite of their job. Right. It's the opposite of their job. Truly. Um, so just blowing my mind over and over again, not to mention this this Kentucky attorney general who is black and a young man. And I'm assuming I can only assume we're going to have to talk to, to Brittany Packnett Cunningham about this, but I can only assume she has some opinions. But, you know, this guy is so caught up in the Republican Party. He attended university, I think, on a scholarship that is in Mitch McConnell's name. Uh, He was Mitch McConnell's, uh, this is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Turtle Mitch, um, was his general counsel for two years, was married to his granddaughter for about a year and a half, got divorced, um, spoke recently at the Republican National Convention. Remember all those black people that Trump lined up at the RNC Mm -hmm. to to say that he wasn't racist? Remember Mm -hmm. that, April? He this yeah. ag was one of those guys and yeah. he knew he was about to make the announcements in this case and he still participated yeah so there's a whole it's, po- there's a whole yeah. podcast series that could be done on the way that black that black people fall victim to white su- to white supremacy uh, to anti black white supremacy mm-hmm. ourselves you know mm-hmm. practicing it on ourselves but oof
1: yeah that's oof. I, it, it, it's almost even too much to to even My
2: chest hurt.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say like I I talk so much that I'm often not lost for words, but it's just right. like I, I can't it's unreal. And you know, John, another thing that I've been thinking about lately and it's not so uh it's not so black and white or right or wrong or whatever, but I've been thinking about it, Brianna Taylor's death and its proximity to men. Hmm and how she's the only woman involved in this entire incident.
3: Mhm.
1: And she's the only dead person in this mm-hmm. entire incident. Now, that doesn't mean men as a group of humans killed Brianna Taylor. I mean like doesn't it? But like men killed Brianna Taylor. Right. And it's just it makes me it's I, I've just been sitting with that thought and it makes me very uncomfortable. And it makes me very sad. And it it just sort of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And I'm, I'm sort of struggling to get to sort of the next step. But I just keep coming back to that. This woman, this young woman my age, who...
2: That's a crazy thing to me. Like,
1: yeah, she's my, I mean, we're same age. She was, was 27, I believe. So, yeah, April, to me, that remi-
2: it, it. it reminds me of the way that, like, I think it's something like 75% of women in the prison system are, ha- have been abused in the past, right? Domestic mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many of those women are incarcerated because they were fighting back, you know? Mm-hmm and and not taking it anymore and then the police get called and they end up you know they end up michelle alexander talks about this in her book um new jim crow they end up you know the cops come in and then they find some shit that the guy has drugs or something in the house and then all of a sudden the woman is in prison for 20 years because she was in a place that has drugs in it you know and related this is just because there's police officers involved in this instance with brianna taylor i think something like 40% 40% of police families experience domestic violence. So police are more violent than the average person generally in their homes. So Brianna Taylor, poor innocent Brianna Taylor woman who is surrounded by all these men, she's more likely to be hurt or incarcerated or something because she's in a house with a man generally and she's more she is being encountered by these police officers who are more likely to be abusive and violent as well. So it's like she just didn't stand a chance, you know. Yeah.
1: yeah. And and that's not to put that's not putting blame on her boyfriend. The there's no there's no blame to be had statistics. by her her boyfriend. But statistically speaking, she is more likely to be uh, to experience violence because of her close proximity to men and police. Right. And that is just yeah. Where, how, there was nothing that she did wrong or could have done differently. That is that is just example of how the world and society commits violence against women because of the way that it's designed.
2: It's set up that way. Her
1: boyfriend didn't do anything wrong. Brianna didn't do anything wrong. But here Wait. she is dead. Uh, Yeah. And I I think about her and, you know, how close in age we were, but how different our lives are.
3: Yeah.
1: And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's traumatic. And part of that trauma is, it's something that Black people just live with.
2: We just carry it around. Go to
1: work with it. You bring it back home. You eat dinner with it. It's it's on your shoulders when you have your Zoom calls with your friends or your happy hours with your coworkers. Yep. It's just always there. And I feel like lately I've I've seen, um, and myself have experienced a more intentional practice of sharing that trauma. So when you know, when Brianna's case was decided this past week, I sent an email to my boss. Same. And said, Look, this is how just so you know. This is what I'm experiencing. And yep. and our, you know, team members who are across the country and in particularly in Louisville, I don't speak for them. Um I uh, I imagine I speak with them and you can pretty much guarantee that this is how at least some of them are feeling as well. Right. Just so you know.
2: Right. You hear, um, I remember a few years ago, it might have been tw- in 2016 when that summer of just hell took place, and then you know, capped off by Donald Trump being elected. Um, I remember there was a video that went viral about calling in black,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, wanting to call into work, saying like, "Hey, um, like, I shouldn't have to give you more of an explanation than this because if you're paying attention, you shouldn't need one." But the fact that I'm black and existing in this country where the drywall in my neighbor's apartment is more valuable than my life should police fire into it through my apartment and into theirs um so I'm gonna not be at work today you know
1: yeah because
2: goddamn like I can't go lead like a diversity and inclusion you know workshop with my job and I mean I work at UCLA and so it's like a great very liberal, very understanding place to work, but I'm still expected to be professional and be, you know, act like like I'm normal, to act, I act like my life isn't valued less than everyone else's, you know?
1: Right. It also brings to mind that idea of a double consciousness. Yeah. And how that is so prevalent in times like this, like these for Black people, where yeah. I have to just turn half, Let's just say half of my life, life. off. Yep. When I clock in in the morning, turn it off. Well, compartmentalize. Yeah, that's. I mean. Yeah, and then when you you know clock out at the end of the day, relax your shoulders and heavy sigh. Yeah. Turn it back on. Unclench your Unfortunately, draw. you turn it back on, and then you know have that just wash over you again. But it's just that, and I guess the 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 point of talking about this is just to recognize that this is a. Racism and the the trauma that comes along with racism is a daily experience for black people. And it is not... Uh, exa- Breonna Taylor and instances like that aren't open and shut. It's oh, just right. an just... addition to the to the... It's just adding another rock into the backpack It's another, that right, we it's carry a, along with us every day, everywhere we go, and everything we do.
2: Right? Yeah. No. It's a it's a data point, right? Like to me, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, right. This is another example in the column of examples that I have. Another tally mark of my life not mattering. You can't just. That's not just the like you said. It's not open and shut. That is a that is applicable to my life now. You know, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, I, you know, our listeners, I would I would suggest Google uh, the term weathering as relates to race and black people. Um, And there's a bunch of data out there that shows that this is one of the reasons black people die earlier. This is one of the reasons that black people have more health problems in addition to uh systemic poverty and systemic systemic you know housing and and nutrition and health and education issues that are all because of white supremacy mind you Let's not Mm -hmm. like nothing black people are not inherently less healthy than anyone else um but this this air that we have to carry around our shoulders shrouded around us that is inherently I have to inherently worry about my sisters because you guys are black and you, I know you worry about me, you tell me, you know, and, and to know, to not only have that stressor always happening, but to also know personally that your own life, should you not, I was going to say, should you, should you not behave completely appropriately, you might be killed, but should, but you also or can be killed if you're behaved completely appropriately. So I don't, I don't even yes, know why I was thinking that. should
1: you be that. sleeping? Yeah, should she you was, be She was sleeping tree? and
2: then on the floor because there were gunshots and was still right. being
1: shot at, so. There's no other way around saying, should you just be black?
2: Should you just be black, right, exactly. Um, I was trying to like justify it or qualify it some way, but it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's just being black. I was wearing a shirt, I'm literally wearing a shirt right now that says, dear police, I am a white woman. And it's like, ha ha ha, that's funny, but like, actually treat me like one please because i will be less likely to be killed if you do that's it yeah. it's and it's you know that reminds me april a, another piece of news that came out um and then i need to stop talking about this because i'm getting upset uh, <laughs> another piece of news that just came out uh do you remember you've heard me sort of obsessed over this case in the past um muhammad noor n-o-o-r um a black police officer, Somali police officer in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, who who shot that blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, Justine Damon, member a few I years remember. ago? I said to myself, April, I'm going to make a Google alert because I'm going to follow this case because this isn't going to be like all the other police cases that we have because the police officer here is black. Not that that really matters because the police policing as a system is messed up. And sometimes black police officers kill other black people and we're still very upset about it, obviously. Um, but the police officer here is black, and the victim, the innocent victim, was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, quote, pretty, quote, beautiful woman, young woman, Australian woman, um, who came out of alley, I think, and came up to his car in in the dark, and he, he says, was startled, and he shot her accidentally. He says, he maintains, it was an accident.
1: Um, and I imagine there was a civil case brought. So,
2: right, the news that just came out was... Right on the heels of Breonna Taylor's family receiving this historic uh, $12 million settlement from the city of Louisville uh, or state, I forget which, Um, everyone's like, this is probably the largest settlement. I think, we think this is the largest settlement of any, um, you know, life that has been taken by police. You know, it's way more than Eric Garner. It's way more than this and that. It's $12 million. Justine Damon, um, that case with Muhammad Noor, the black officer in Minneapolis, who Coincidentally, was the the first officer ever in the state to be charged with murder. Um, this was before George Floyd. He was the the first one was a black officer, of course. They just settled in that case, twenty million dollars, or and I've heard other places twenty eight million dollars. It's private, so I assume I don't know if we actually have the perfect number, but it's twice as much. Like, come on,
1: you know? Yeah, her white life is worth much more. Right, and people will say, well, it's different states, it's different. It's like, fine, 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 that's fine. But it's hard not to think of it that way, right? Yeah, I mean, I I don't care if it's different states.
2: Right, it's like we're all the United States of America, to quote my favorite president. <laughs> 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 this is the United States of Don't get me worked up thinking about Barack, <laughs> like, praise. <laughs>
1: yeah it's yeah. just so, yeah it's just a lot as if we needed another example of black lives not mattering uh yeah. we got one regardless we'll get one next week we'll get one the following week after that um and it just goes on and on until white people decide to end it so it's true That's like the call thing. me like, when you want to reach me when you want to end racism <laughs> i'll be here <laughs> waiting
2: wait april wait 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 wait
1: it's a good show like i don't want to talk about it
2: deep cut what is that show
1: Kim Possible.
2: Kim Possible. Call me, beat me, if you want to reach me, white people, when you're ready to end white supremacy.
1: Yeah, shout out Christina Million too, for that intro.
2: Right, like, end of segment. No, okay, so, April, I'm excited to talk to Brittany. Me too. Should, should we do that? I don't want to talk. About, I know we're going to get into some deep stuff with her, but hell of, a, uh, hell of a first guest to have for our season opener. So why don't we take a break and do that when we get back? Sounds good. All right, so when we come back, We will have our conversation with Brittany Packnett Cunningham.
1: All right, so we are here with the one and only Brittany Packnett Cunningham, an educator, writer, leader, and activist. Brittany, we are so excited to speak with you and learn from you today. Thanks for dropping by the pod.
0: So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having these uh, important conversations.
1: As we head into fall, um, we would be remiss if we didn't touch base on what an intense summer this has been, for lack of a better word. Um, There has been this resurgence of attention and participation in the Black Lives Matter movement um, with the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Unfortunately, there are There are many more. And then you add COVID on top of that. So can you tell us what your summer has been like, uh, particularly from an activist viewpoint?
0: It was as chaotic as you. (laughs) 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 Um, It was most certainly unexpected. And trying to figure out how to organize and keep people safe, both from COVID and also in protest during COVID, has been a real... um, has I think been a real test of everybody's creativity. The good news is that black people are um, brilliant and innovative and courageous and beautiful. And so um, watching um, so many of my comrades in this space rise to the occasion in brand new ways just continues to give me so much hope. Um, I'm also really proud of the ways in which folks with really large platforms and a great deal of resources from you know, individuals to media networks to, um, you know, uh, businesses and collectives that are black run and black owned, um, have, have stepped up to help fill the gaps. So, you know, I, um, I do a lot of work, uh, in, in all my free time <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with, with BET and have been, um, advising and consulting on a lot of their, uh, on a lot of their, Um, social impact work over the last, over the better part of this year. Uh, It's included you know, National Black Voter Day, which we made up and thankfully was really successful and got a lot of people registered and educated on um, the importance of our franchise this November and always. Um, But it also looked like supporting the work behind the scenes for what ended up being a pretty historic COVID fundraiser and what we were able to do because this was a Black-led space was pick target cities with large Black populations, work with the United Way, and direct the over $16 million that was raised to the organizations that are on the ground supporting and protecting Black people during this crisis, specifically people who were paying rents and mortgages, who were helping people pay bills, who were giving people the technology and the equipment that they needed to do learning at home, folks Mm -hmm. who were giving COVID screenings um, and healthcare support, Um, And so those are the kinds of ways that I think we've just been seeing people step up. And I feel really privileged to have been able to have my finger in some of those those pots um, in front of the scenes and behind the scenes because our communities need and deserve a lot in these moments. So wherever I could help stand in the gap, that's what my summer's been, much to my husband's chagrin. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I was going to say you you mentioned your free time. Uh I, April and I know that you were being very sarcastic with that, but I hope our listeners know that you <laughs> you are all over the place and you're everywhere I look and I'm so uh we're so thrilled to see all the work that you and your uh the coalitions that you're a part of have been doing. Um you know, we we're recording this uh the day after the charging decision in the Brianna Taylor matter was announced. um, I wish, you know, I'm happy we're talking about it and I'm happy that we got you on the line this day after, but, but I'm so sad. And so I'm about to start crying now talking about it. And so I just, you know, Brittany, if you could just give your thoughts on, on this case, and I know it's a huge question and it's, it's a lot of emotional labor to sort of talk about it. Um, but to the extent that you're, you're willing to share, I, I know our listeners would love to hear your, your thoughts on this, this travesty, this sort of miscarriage of justice.
0: Yeah. I mean, we couldn't have known that this would have been the previous 24 hours when we got this conversation on the calendar. Right. Um, but, but, but like you, I'm, I'm glad that it is here. Um, Cause we just, we need space to process. Right. And that. So many of us, I know you all included, that choose the work of justice every day. The space to process, to grieve, to mourn, to be fully human is often quite limited if it exists at all.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Yesterday I got on my IG Live, which is not a thing I I do uh, frequently um, unless, you know, there's been a previously scheduled event. Um,
2: Oh, I watched you.
0: (laughs) It's especially something that I haven't done recently since... I very unexpectedly got a large following on that platform and I'm really trying to make sure that I don't speak unless I actually have something to say and don't feel this urge to like chase the creation of content for the sake of, Mm. you know, visibility or whatever. So I decided I I really sat um, in, in my living room and prayed about it before I got on because I just wanted to make sure that it was the right choice and I realized it, and I feel like God was really clear, like people just need space, right? And so like, I didn't have to go in kind of with a prepared statement or remarks. I just kind of shared some of the things that were on my mind. And when, mm-hmm. the, the beautiful thing about IG Live is that people start to build community in the comments, right? And so mm-hmm. we're all here together trying to figure it out. And you might be responding to what I'm saying, or you might be responding to what somebody is saying in the comments who said the thing and articulated the thing that you are feeling that you couldn't put words to. Hmm. Um, and so I'm glad that we're having this time. It is, it is difficult, but, um, I'm finding myself trying to stay centered in Brianna's humanity. Hmm. Um, the Bernice King tweeted, uh, the day that this happened, that, you know, Brianna Taylor was a friend and a sister and a daughter and a cousin and a loved one and a human being before she became a hashtag. And I think it's so important for us to remember about, all of these names that we unfortunately know. I mean, unless she had chosen otherwise, Breonna Taylor should have been able to be anonymous. She should have been able to lead a life where she was not known across the world, unless that was her desire. Um, and this, this idea that black life is flattened into a hashtag, uh, because oppression flattens us every day is a hard pill to swallow. Um, and so I, I find myself sitting with that and not trying to rush through the emotions of that for the sake of getting to work. Um, because that being clear eyed and honest with myself about where I am, helps me do the work more earnestly, it helps me do the work more authentically, it helps me do the work in a way that is oriented toward real justice and genuinely intersectional solutions and not just kind of the service of my own ego or wanting to be in the middle of a conversation or, um, you know, uh, uh wanting to be a, a mover and shaker in this moment. Cause that's really just truly not what any of this is about. And so staying centered in her humanity, I think helps me remain focused on what we actually have to do. And I think what's important to remember is that there are a lot of details about this case that help us know, exactly what the criminal legal system and the institution of policing think of Black lives. Right. Details around the fact that this unit doesn't have to wear any body cameras and this is the unit that services no-knock warrants, which should let us know that these folks have no desire to to let America see what what is happening procedurally. Mm. Um, There are details around the fact that you know, Kenneth Walker called 911, and the police are now trying to say that they announced themselves. But why would Kenneth Walker call 911 and say right. he thought his home was being invaded if he knew it was the police? You don't call the police on the police. Um, you know, there are facts around uh, her, uh, Brianna and Kenneth's neighbors, um, around ten of them, saying and confirming this. Uh, Truth from Kenneth that the police did not announce themselves and Daniel Cameron set up yesterday and talked about one lone witness in the entire apartment complex that said that the police, uh, the police identified themselves. There are details that we now know around Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend who was already in custody when um, they served the raid on on her home. Um, Them trying to retroactively go back and give him time off of his sentence if he were to retroactively implicate Brianna in drug activity, so that they could retroactively justify their behavior that night, there is the detail of, uh, of uh, Jonathan Mattingly, one of the officers who is, no matter what the courts say, responsible for Brianna Taylor's death, sending out an email just a couple of days ago saying that he fully believes that they did the moral and ethical and legal thing that night, uh, and offering a level, frankly, of disdain and unrighteous indignation at the mere thought that he would be held accountable for taking a life. All of these details are germane to this particular case, but none of these details are the point. Because the point is that Brianna should be alive. The point is that George Floyd should be alive. The point is that Tony McDade should be alive. The point is that Tamir Rice should be alive. The point is that people are rightfully and justifiably refusing to suspend their disbelief anymore because this system continues to prove exactly what it is and exactly who it stands for. Um, And so in the wake of that, I think what we are all called to do is figure out how we're going to be in service of a vision that protects us all instead of protects just some people And how we carry forward in the struggle in Brianna's name in a way that truly honors her memory and ensures that her life wasn't lost in vain. So whatever that is for you who are listening, be deliberate, be disciplined, be thoughtful, um, be loving, um, and be be determined because that's what Brianna deserves from us.
2: Man, I... I uh, Thank you for that. They, this, you know, we share a lot of the same thoughts on this. And I know April agrees that we're just trying to to focus on the humanity of our sister, who was, you know, who was gunned down and whom Daniel Cameron, the AG, told us yesterday um, l- her life couldn't be. Um, couldn't, the, the taking of her life couldn't be prosecuted because of self-defense, basically, is what is basically what it boiled down to, What is what he said. And so um, I want to, you know, aside from how out of, you know, ridiculous that sounds, um, I want to ask you about Daniel Cameron, um, because he is the black attorney general of Kentucky, um, who I don't think a lot of people knew much about until this year. Yeah. Um and we've come to find out that people are piecing together that he was—he spoke at the the RNC uh, mm-hmm. in favor of Trump, basically saying that Trump isn't racist. Um, he has a long relationship with with Mitch McConnell. I believe he was married to her granddaughter at one point. Uh, he went to to school on a scholarship in Mitch McConnell's name. Like it is very much—he is tied up in the Republican Party wow. tight. Um, and so, what what are your I kind of am just at a loss when I look at when I look at him and look at hear what he's saying to us, him being a black person who is who is saying these hurtful things to us and to our people. Um how do we pro- how do we process that? What is your what is your advice on 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 you know, processing that that sort of betrayal? You know, all of us have a grandmother that said, you know, huh. all you know, skin folk aren't kin folk, you know, right? Like our kin you know, and so how do we process this?
0: You know, well, first of all, to 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 what Daniel Cameron said about and what you were saying about this almost essentially being self-defense, it's actually not wild. You know why? Right. You're right. Blackness in America is seen as the threat. Mm. So mm. the the truth of our lived experiences dictates that we don't actually have to be engaged in any threatening behavior. In fact. We can be at rest in our own home just like Breonna Taylor was, just like Botham Jean was, just like Ayanna Jones was. We can be at rest and engaging in no threatening activity whatsoever, but our existence as Black people is inconvenient and a threat to a status quo that would much rather us step aside. So in the the space of this criminal legal system, in the space of this institution of policing, I'm not confused as to why Daniel Cameron could fix his mouth to imply right. self-defense um, because that is how this system sees us right. as a threat, no matter what we are doing, where we are or where we are going. To your question though, I'm gonna say something that may sound strange, <laughs> but you know, I'm thinking about all of the ways in which marginalized people across the globe have internalized our own oppression and how how that manifests. It manifests in a number of different ways, right? It manifests in me straightening my hair as an example, right? And I know this, I still straighten my hair and I'm still, and I'm these people who's like a purist about black hair, right? Like wear your hair the way you wanna wear it because I most certainly will. I'll probably change it next week, who knows? <laughs> But I know that the introduction of the idea that straight hair is better than kinky hair comes from experiencing oppression. And then me turning around and believing it, even subconsciously, is me internalizing that oppression, right? And it is impossible, unfortunately, it is impossible to experience oppression and not internalize some of it. And it manifests in a whole number of different ways, right? And how we dress and how we speak and where we decide to go to school and where we decide to live and who we marry. I mean, there are lots of ways that can manifest. And unlearning that is one of the most arduous tasks of my entire life. It is a journey that I am still on. And so I say that knowing that I am grateful to have had experiences teachers, and loved ones who refused to let me get so far afield that the ways in which I internalized my oppression would be as damaging as what we saw Daniel Cameron do yesterday. That said, my question is like, so who's got Daniel Cameron? Right. I say, like I, you know, as as a black woman who like was mentored by black senior leaders in the organizations that I've worked for and worked with, like somebody looked at me and said, "Oh, I've got her," right? right. We that's what we do, right? We get to school the upper the black upperclassmen and upperclass folks at the at PWIs. We all look at the freshmen and the sophomores, and we're like, "Okay, right. I got this one. You got that one." Because in community, we have that we have to pull each other's coattails and move one another along in right. the ways that were done for us. So like, who's got Daniel Cameron? Maybe who's, he's too far afield, but like who's got <laughs> Daniel Cameron? Who's got him enough to say my brother, right. your proximity to them will not save you. Your approval by white folks is actually not going to save you and protect you in the moment when you and your blackness become an inconvenience to them. And it will.
2: Exactly.
0: Unfortunately, I promise you that it will. So, like, who's got Daniel Cameron to say, hey, bruh, I know you're getting compliments from Mitch right now. I know Trump is shouting you out and quoting you at his press conferences let's talk about why that's not the kind of attention you want. You are going to forever be on the wrong side of history and you can make a different choice. And that even if you are solely focused on building your own career and stepping over the slain body of Breonna Taylor to do it, uh-huh. that you will get to where you think you want to go and they will discard you as soon as you get in their way. I don't care how many things you did for them. I don't care how many favors you did. I don't care how much you've been over backward. I don't care how many press conferences you stood in front of to perpetuate their agenda. You are still just as invaluable to all of the rest of us Black folks. Just wonder if it's been said to him. And if somebody says it, earnestly and honestly and he doesn't have any interest in hearing it well then that's on Daniel Cameron
2: and that's him
0: but I do I, I have a level of sadness about how far one has to get to assume a level of conscientiousness in a system of white supremacy when the all of the evidence is to the contrary. Like, I have a level of sadness and I'm wondering, like, where were the points that somebody should have gotten him and pulled him aside and started to have these conversations and plant these seeds? Um, Because people did it for me. Right. Right. People did it for you. Uh, I have a responsibility to do it for somebody else. And there are people who are still doing it for me who are like, sis, this isn't what you want. I'm grateful for the evolution that I continue to make. And I am equal parts. Furious and sad whenever I see Black folks being used as a tool in our own oppression.
1: Brittany, what you everything you said resonates so wholly, uh, entirely with me. I, I think it's just spot on, and it is sad and it is frustrating to see someone like him being used so uh, so uh, overtly. I I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about activism right now and uh, how people are one are responding uh, to the Breonna Taylor case but in general to how people are um, are sort of showing up during the pandemic um, and on the flip side how we see people showing up at home and online. We've seen social media become uh, a, a sort of a, a different uh, platform or it's it's, it's changed in how people use it as a as a platform for activism but can you can you talk about um what have been the obstacles and then the advantages of using social media and being active online um because of because we're you know stuck in home during this pandemic how are you seeing activism change because we aren't or some of us can't be out there in the streets what does what does that look like for you
0: I think I'm. What I'm excited about is that people are taking more seriously the opportunity that social media presents for like public and popular education. I don't mean like a school building. I mean that the way the things that I have learned about, the facts that I have learned that have been sourced right, that are like backed up with data, that I have learned scrolling Instagram is exciting to me um, because it is making popular education that much more accessible. You know, I'm old enough to remember like the Bill Nye, the science guy era. And so (laughs) you you were going to get educational content. It was going to come from like a static half hour, like it was going to be the same, you know, from 4:30 to five o'clock central, <laughs> right. When you came home, I have this, school, I have the
2: song in my head now right?
0: every weekday. Right. And so it was, there was a container that held educational experiences. And so often those containers required a level of elite access that most of our folks didn't have. So I went to, pri- I went to private schools most of my entire life. And that was like a, you know, my mom and my dad's hard work. And then when my dad passed, like my mom's hard work and scholarship money. And so I was the exception pretty much every day. I walked through the hallways. One of the exceptions every day I walked through the hallways, like a speck of pepper and a sea of salt. <laughs> and so I learned really early on that these kind of rigorous academic experiences are restricted to certain people And that if you are extremely fortunate, you singularly as an individual can break through. But like, what does that mean for all of your people who are not getting access to this knowledge? And even at that, I got a great academic education, but I was being taught to hate myself, right? I mean, there were Mm -hmm. lots of things I was internalizing in that moment. All that to say though, that the point of the internet The point of social media is to help increase the egalitarianism of information, that we should have a more democratic information sharing space. We know that this is not perfectly democratic by any means, but it is more democratic than if you have to have a library card or a college degree or a edu email address in order to access the learning. And I'm seeing so many more people who had to get creative in the midst of COVID Choosing to publicly educate and engage people in action through social media. So, the amount of, I mean, be, like, also just beautiful and aesthetically pleasing infographics and explainer videos, and the way, I mean, the way that Gen Z is using TikTok. Right. To blow mm-hmm. My mind. The fact that they are the reason why Trump had, like, a, a, a Quarter of
2: being <laughs>
0: uh, right. full at a at a rally that he shouldn't have been having in person anyway. The fact that it was young people on TikTok who were like, "Oh, I don't know, we could just reserve these tickets and then not go." Brilliant, really, <laughs> absolutely. And who was gonna so catch? Smart. It? You're smart. I'm not on TikTok, right? Like the elders, the elders, the adults, the big cousins, the big, We're not gonna catch it. Right. So there's a there's something so powerful. Um, and, and I think that this is true of every generation that we use the tools that we have at our disposal creatively to get free and social media is no different. My worry on the other side of that though, is that we're, I I don't believe that our communities are fully prepared for the amount of digital warfare that has already been waged on us and will continue to be waged on us. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, I tried to track down the origins of posters that were going up telling people to protest at different times and in different places across the country in solidarity with Breonna Taylor. The first thing I did was I hit up the Louisville activists cause I've been working directly with them since the day I found out about her. I always try my best to reach out to local activists. And I asked them, I was like, is this y'all? Like, is this, and the colors weren't familiar. There's no organization on it. Like what is going on? I was like, is this you all? Or has anybody coordinated with you all? Cause this is being done, you know, in Brianna's name. Right. Nope, no answer. So I'm over here trying to track it down in the various cities that I've known. And now I don't, I'm not the gatekeeper to activism. It's, it, there's a very real chance that legitimate organizations and real organizers like created this. And they're just people I don't happen to know but I want to make sure that as people are sharing information that people are going to be reliably as safe as possible. And I say safe with an asterisk because we're never fully safe in a police state, but I wanted, I want people to know that they can reasonably expect a level of discipline and organization when they follow the directions of this flyer and they meet at whatever park at whatever time. And I still haven't actually been able to find the sources of that. Um, And my worry was this is the kind of iconography and language that we know for a fact police will fake and perpetuate, get everybody to one spot and then round people up, right? Um, Or that people who are not police, but who are trying to exploit the movement will get everybody to one time and one space and then behind masks, which now everybody is supposed to be wearing, you know, and in all black can be the ones to cause violence. And then black organizers are the ones who get blamed. And that is the footage that Trump leads with in his next ad. So there are lots of insidious forces that. And that's just one example. When we watch what happened on Blackout Tuesday, that's another one. right. Watch what happened, what has been continuously happening with the amount of disinformation being spread about the Biden Harris ticket, especially on Facebook that has gone unchecked when we look at the fact that it is very likely that Kyle Rittenhouse found community with other radicalized white supremacists in a private Facebook group that was reported but not shut down before he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and killed protesters. Like, all of that is happening right in front of us, and we keep being behind the eight ball to answer it. And unless and until we get our people extremely literate in what uh, digital disinformation and digital suppression looks like, and unless and until our platforms are fully held accountable, not only for the ways that they have spread these things or allowed these things to be spread, but the ways that they will, with urgency and immediacy, stand up and prevent that stuff. Unless and until those things happen, then we are going to continue to get caught flat-footed in digital warfare and that is the wave of the 21st century. Russia knows it. Trump knows it. <laughs> like right. just know it. We seem to be the only ones who don't want to admit how much it's been affecting our communities. It happened in 2016. It's happening right now.
2: Oh you are so like I'm sitting here just like literally shaking my head as you're as you're listening these things because it's just you're so right and it is it's all things that we've heard about but you forget to take these all of these issues sort of as collective opposition to what we're doing because that's what it is um and yeah so you you know you mentioned um i want to i want to since we have you i want to ask you as many things as possible so i'm going to move on a little bit uh you mentioned education um And even, and, and, you know, online learning and all the various ways that folks are taking advantage of that. I'm actually teaching a a course soon, um, shameless plug called Roots to Revolution. It's a history course, just that's not whitewashed. Um, Mm. And it is, it's going to be great and we're excited for it. But, you know, the, the traditional education space, um, if, if I, did my if I know your remember your history correctly? You're, you you were, were an educator, Brittany. Um, and and I think I actually first uh, met you in the education context, or or heard your name in the education context. Um, what are your thoughts on on young people returning to school uh, during this ongoing pandemic? And and sort of what are your thoughts on you know what has gone wrong with this process and and to the extent that they need advice, in your opinion, what do educators need to know um, going back as we start the fall?
0: You know, I think it's important uh, to remember, and I say this with a great deal of humility, that none of us really fully know right. exactly how to do this.
2: <laughs> right, that's so exactly true.
0: really fully know Um, what is happening on the other side of those screens, especially if we're not having to do it every day. So I'm going to answer the question, but I'm going to answer it with the huge caveat. Right. (laughs) Because I get to be this kind of engaging kind of popular education, but I actually don't have to set up a classroom every day, nor do I have to be a child in front of a computer screen all day or be a parent who is trying to homeschool a child who is in front of a computer every day. I have limited knowledge here. Um, and I think that there's like grace that we all need to offer each other. And that needs to be built into the new practices and policies and regulations of our school systems. Like grace should be the policy because everybody is trying to figure this out. Not only just while they're doing it and building the plane as we fly, but in some of the most desperate circumstances. Because what is happening in the background is that parents are trying to figure out how to work from home and homeschool and be the chef at the restaurant and, right, you right. know, the bus driver and lead extracurricular activities all at the same time. And
2: the school nurse, as far
0: as the school nurse, about. right? <laughs> the PE teacher, the librarian, right, everything, right. all at once. But this is also happening against a background of 200,000 deaths. There's no possible way that teachers are not turning on that camera having, had been personally, having not been personally affected by this pandemic, that children not turn, are not turning on that camera, that parents are not sitting down their children in front of a computer who have not been affected by this. They have. This is happening against the backdrop of major job loss and job insecurity and housing insecurity. This is happening against the backdrop of people uh, enduring disability for the first time living with disability for the first time. This is happening against the backdrop of folks who do not have the quality healthcare they need to protect themselves against a, a global pandemic. So if grace is not the policy, whomever and whatever teams are in charge of the systems that are educating our people, so charter management organizations, public school districts, colleges and universities, community colleges. My advice, frankly, is not for the teachers or the students or the parents. It is for the people who run and perpetuate those systems to put grace into the policy. They go over testing people in a virtual environment you are doing it wrong. That if you are making children sit in front of a computer screen for hours on end when I don't even want to do that and I'm a 35-year-old grown woman, then you're doing it wrong. If you are expecting teachers to uh, be able to perfectly differentiate learning for 35 students from a computer screen when all 35 of those students don't even have access to broadband internet, you're doing it wrong.
2: And And that's that's 35 on a good day
0: on a good day, right, on a good day. And so that's not to say that we lower the standard, but it is to say if we're going to keep the standards high, but we recognize the unique challenges of this moment, then how do we adjust the way that we are doing things and resource and support teachers to be able to teachers and parents to be able to make those adjustments in real time. You don't move the bar, you change your practice. And I think far too often people especially when you kind of reach these spaces of administration and supervisory roles in the education space, it's easy to get disconnected. And to forget what it looks like to try to be trying to do this in real time. And it's easy to forget that once a child is enrolled and once a teacher signs that contract, that it is our collective job to make sure they are successful. We don't get to the end of the school year and say, well, if you made it, you made it. If you don't, you don't know. Mm. It's our, our task, our responsibility is to make sure you're successful at the end of all of that. So the question is not how many of you are going to make it. The question is, what do we do to make sure you all make it? Um, And I'm really going to challenge the folks who work in the systems uh, to think about how they shift policy to reflect that level of grace and support.
1: Do you think it's too uh, much wishful thinking for us to view this moment as uh, a chance for us to look at those inequalities and look at where at how uh how different uh, our students are and and the resources they have and say oh oh gosh i never thought that these you know half my class does not have access to the internet when they're at home mm-hmm. let's do something about it because i feel like and as Angry as it makes me i I do feel like some of that is simply unknown people either not taking the time to 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 know their students or just uh, simple ignorance or folks being surprised to learn that you know three quarters of an eighth grade class uh, they don't have computers at home or they don't have uh, internet access at home if that stuff is made public now and it it's brought to our attention, could this be a time for us to uh, bring about change there?
0: I think it can as long as we determine to make that the case. Um, I've been saying this since the beginning of COVID that we are all enduring the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. That the mm. injustices that are spotlighted by this pandemic existed before the uh, before this crisis and they are exacerbated by this crisis. Um, you know, I mean, y'all remember in the beginning of COVID, it was like all of the, I think well-intentioned, but somewhat misleading messages around like, we're all in this together. and, And it was like, people mean well, but if you are going, if you are deciding that you're going to ride out this pandemic by going to your summer house in the Hamptons and like buying up all of the food that the people who live there year round now don't have access to, then like, you're not actually in this with me. (laughs) You're in this with yourself. (laughs) And so, 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 so operating in reality means that we have to recognize that those eighth graders who didn't have broadband internet access didn't have it before COVID. And we all wanted to pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal until suddenly it was justice is in some ways the best insurance that there is. Because if you have access to the things that you need, then you will have access to those things when you need them. Mm -hmm. Um, that you know, the broadband internet access might not mean as much during a normal school year where you are going physically to a school building or you can go to a library or an internet cafe, but it matters that much more uh, when school is now at home and it's virtual. And Therefore, you should have had the access all along in case this moment came because it was just for you to have it. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I think that I think that there is an opportunity before us to see what this pandemic has spotlighted and decide to do something about it. My worry is that because it feels like everything's on fire, that the same things that folks were ignoring before the pandemic they'll continue to ignore now. My hopeful faith-filled side wants to be wrong. Like <laughs> I very much want to eat my own words on this one. Right. Uh because I I I have seen people step up. You know, my friend um My good friend Leslie Bernard Joseph runs a school called Coney Island Prep in New York City, and he is just so brilliant and so committed, Uh, but he closed his school, I want to say a week or two earlier than um, New York City Public Schools closed because uh, he knew he could see the writing on the wall, and he knew that the people who would suffer uh, most readily were the black and brown families that he uh, served. Um, and immediately, their team went to work meeting people's immediate needs. So the question wasn't, how are we going to deal with the Regents test at the end of the year? No, the question was, can you still afford to put food on the table for you and your family? And if you can't, how can I help you do that? So it was gift cards and it was, bill, you know, straight cash to pay people's bills. He got a ton of Chromebook um, donations. He, you know, worked really hard to make sure everybody had the internet access that they needed. He made sure that, Teachers were able to figure out how to resource their students without, uh, you know, going into their own pockets as teachers are so often having to do. So folks like Leslie, frankly, give me a lot of give me the hope that helps me think that maybe I might be at least somewhat wrong about the worry and that the worry might be might be somewhat misplaced because there are people who um, see the injustices and are ready to answer them.
1: Thinking about um, sort of switching gears and thinking about the election, um, I know that our listeners are very interested to hear your thoughts on Kamala Harris as Biden's uh, VP choice. Uh, can you can you share your thoughts on um, uh- first on the announcement itself um, and sort of leading up to it. Uh, we were sort of on the edge of our seats. Not really, but I guess that's what we, were, what we wanted to be.
0: Somebody <laughs> um, uh, tell us already, please. go Yeah. Uh,
1: tell us your thoughts on, on Kamala as uh, uh, Joe's VP choice.
2: And I'm trying to hear your thoughts on Joe as well, also.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: um... You know, I um, I was talking with my friend Kayla Reed the other day, who is uh, the executive director of Action St. Louis, and she is just like she's everybody should be following her and learning from her and like supporting every single thing she does. She's just one of the most talented and thoughtful Black organizers, organizers period, that I know. Um, and we were talking about electoral justice in the context of creating and bettering the conditions for our struggle, right? That that we're actually not organizing around, uh, around a candidate as much as we are organizing around conditions that are more favorable to us making progress in the ways that we need to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope and pray that everyone either knows or comes to know very quickly before November 3rd, that there is no doubt about the fact that the conditions that a Biden-Harris ticket present to us are demonstrably better than the conditions that a Trump-Pence administration continues to present to us.
2: It's not even um, a question. I, like, I can't even believe know, that that's a question.
0: So, but here's the thing, you know why it's a question? And it goes back to something we were talking about before disinformation. Mm-hmm. When you have disinformation and not misinformation, right? Misinformation implies that there was a mistake made. This it is just
2: happens to be wrong. right?
0: Yes. Disinformation is intentional. When you have disinformation funneled by everyone from Russian troll farms to white supremacists to yes, folks who are deep funders of the GOP. When you have them spreading disinformation, that says things like Biden and Harris jailed more black men than any other elected official in history. Ugh. It's fundamentally untrue. But if you have been exposed over and over and over again to that disinformation and you have seen nothing to factually counteract that more times than you saw the disinformation, because there's a lot of studies around like how difficult it is actually to counter disinformation and hey. that Eating the disinformation, even to correct it, can actually confuse people more and can lead them not to believe the correct information, but still to believe the incorrect information. It's very tricky. But if you have endured and encountered this disinformation and then not gotten the proper correction that actually fully, um, that you can actually fully internalize, then when somebody says to you, yeah, I know Joe Biden might not have been your pick, but at least he's better than Trump. You might actually think, no, he's not better than Trump, uh-huh. because you've gotten the disinformation, and you've gotten the disinformation from the right that says Trump got ASAP Rocky out of jail, Oof. and Trump is, you know, the reason why black unemployment is the lowest. It's a, it was the lowest it had ever been, even though that was because of Obama era work, right? Like if you have been, and he,
2: got, to- he got he uh, got, you know, prison reform done.
0: Exactly. Or that, you know, he's the great protector of HBCUs or his favorite line that he's the best president for black people since since uh, Abraham Lincoln. right? Maybe since. If you've gotten the double dose of the disinformation about Kamala and Joe and the disinformation about Donald Trump then you actually might genuinely be confused as to which one is better. And I think that we have to have that honest a conversation because it is easy to say, how in the world do you really like, what, what are you talking about? But there are folks who are targeted such that they don't know any better. Right. And it's not because those people are stupid. It's because the disinformation is functioning as it was designed. So, I, I that's why I say I pray and I hope that between now and November 3rd that people receive the kind of edifying, clarifying information that they need to know beyond any shadow of any doubt that the conditions of a Biden Harris administration are far and away better than uh the conditions of a Trump administration. I also think you know, I've done some work with 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 Senator Harris. Um I, I respect her greatly. I consider her a mentor. She has been really thoughtful and very generous with her wisdom with me. And I think that she would agree that no public official, no politician is a savior, right? And that's why we organize for conditions and not candidates. I think that it is unfortunate that the story that continues to be told about her, is it doesn't include... Um, her incredibly progressive Senate record. I mean, she's one of the most progressive right. senators seated right now um, in a Senate where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are also her colleagues with whom she has worked closely. I think that they're I think that we are confused and incorrect. We assume that our our candidates need to be saviors, and we need to agree with them on absolutely everything. It is impossible for a perfect candidate to exist because what who, who may be perfect to you might not be perfect to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like the way that Senator Harris, in particular, has been lifted up as almost this like progressive litmus test is unfair. I think that there's a lot of work, a lot of work. That needs to happen in this country to actually eradicate the systems that harm us. And when I say eradicate, I legitimately mean the abolition of the carceral state, abolishing uh, jails and prisons, abolishing yep. the police department, fully reimagining public safety, divesting from police and investing in communities. I literally mean all of that. Yes. Um, and I want conditions that allow me to go and organize for that. That doesn't happen under Trump, period. End of story.
2: Well, so. I'm trying to be mindful of your time, Brittany. Um, So I have just one more. I have one more question for you. As you might know, uh, you know, April and I are some of your biggest fans, but we are not to be outdone by our mother, who is (laughs) probably your biggest fan on this planet. So our mom is a, uh, uh, Shan, she won't mind me saying this. She is a 68-year-old white lady. Um, We are biracial, half black, half white, and our, uh, you know, our uh, podcast is a lot of our listeners are white well-meaning white people who are looking to uh, to sort of make a difference so my question is what advice do you have uh, for people like her who are well-meaning white people who are who want to have listened to this all of the things we've listed here and and want to make the best and biggest difference that they can
0: so first of all hey Nancy you must be very very <laughs> proud of your incredible kiddos here uh, thank you for the support and thank you for um thank you for these wonderful contributions to the world that you are making and to that end, I think that what white people really need to get about the business of doing is educating, organizing, activating, correcting and moving their people um i did I did pod Save America. On HBO, like last year. Uh, yes, I remember that. Um, It was, it was, you know, there was still so much hope in the air. Like, Beto was really close to winning. He was the guest on that show. Like, there was just, there was just so much hope in the air. What a different time? <laughs> different time indeed. Um, but I, I gave a, I gave a bit of a, a talking to to the fifty-three percent. And as I started off. John Lovett, one of the co-hosts, was like, I just want to assure you this is the 47%. And I was like, I get that, but I also know how math works, so I know that the 47% knows the 53%, right? Right, exactly. So I actually need the 47% to go and tell the 53% to get on the right side of history. There is a positioning of white womanhood in particular in this country that has allowed white women to think that the protection of whiteness will be constant for them. It will not be constant for Daniel Cameron and it will not be constant for you. Mm. You can look at the white women, and this was, we we were having this conversation on HBO right in the shadow of uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation.
2: Right, right. And
0: so the number of white women who came out against Brett Kavanaugh, they got discarded just like the rest of us, right? And so there's a, there was a lesson in that, that I was hoping to distill for white women who either might have been in that 53% or the white women in the 47% who need to know that the 53% are their responsibility. I mean, you asked me about Daniel Cameron. And my question is who got Daniel Cameron, you know, somebody in the 53% who's got them right. They're going to hear you differently internalize your messaging differently, receive you differently than they receive me, than they receive a person of color, a woman of color, etc. Um, your husbands will receive you differently than they receive me. Right. And I think that, and if I broaden it more widely just from white women to white people, your work is not done until you've converted all the white folks. <laughs> like, period. Right. And, and I know that, that feels daunting because it is like that's how much work is in front of you. Um, and doing helping other white people do their work means that you have to be constantly doing your own, right? And and you know I have I have very good white friends who are like actual white friends because I like talk to them about white people to like to their faces, right? Same. Like, I have like four of them. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I can count you on one hand, but I do. Right, play. right. I have, Um, but we even have to have conversations where I'm like, "Mm, you missed the mark on that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's have the Mm -hmm. conversation, right? Because you're always going to be white. And I know that about you. And I need you to know that about yourself, which means that there is always going to be something more to learn. I am always going to be at least to, to my knowledge, cisgender, which means that there is always something for me to learn because there are privileges that I have that, Make it impossible for me to understand these other perspectives unless I am intentionally open to them, right? Mm. I have to recognize my privilege in that way, and white people have to do the same. And until I'm done undoing all the things in me and helping other people like me undo all the things in them, then my work isn't finished. Um, and and the same is true of white folks. They got to do their work. They got to help other white people do their work on it. And when that's done, then we can all put our feet up. We can go back to brunch. Like AOC said, she said, we're not going back to brunch. <laughs> I was kind of mad. I, I like brunch, but you know, I'm like, we can strategize over brunch. <laughs> I get, I get it. I get it.
1: <laughs> well, this has I can't even express how great this has been. What a treat to uh, John and myself and to our listeners. We've packed so much information um, and uh, learning and growth into uh, one conversation. So Brittany Packnett Cunningham, hope you enjoyed your time on the pod and we hope we can uh, speak to you again real soon. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you all so much. Thanks for this platform. Thanks for, for what you are both doing.
2: Now for this week's action item. April, what do you got?
1: This week, I would like to encourage every single one of our listeners to check out Roots to Revolution is an organization that offers virtual history courses available to all ages of people that teach American history. That's not whitewashed. There are tons of courses that people can sign up for taught by Educators and activists. Um, they are ni- The classes are ninety minutes online, and it's a six or seven week program in the evenings. So it's all online. It's all virtual. Check out roots to revolution to see the online classes that are offered um, to learn a little bit about the uh, educators. And particularly for our uh, listeners who identify as men, check out Mad Men. This is a course taught by our one and only Jonathan. Jonathan, you want to tell about your class in particular? Yeah, so
2: I I'm co-teaching it with a friend of mine, Jonathan Brooks, who is a historian and a high school teacher and educator. Um, and we yeah, it's, he's a white guy, and I'm I, I'm you know gonna be coming at this from a black male perspective. And we're gonna do early and then and then modern history of Amer of this country and the white men who made white supremacy and the patriarchy, but then also the people who combated them, the men who combated them and people who we can look to as examples and sort of, um, you know, and these are like really good networking opportunities too. I've been finding, you know, Mm -hmm. people are making friendships in class, activists are growing their circles and people, anti-racists are growing their skill sets and it's just, it's just really great. So I would encourage folks to, uh, it's hard to get men to sign up for this, we're finding, which is interesting, mm-hmm. um, and we can maybe dedicate another episode to that, um, but um, women are seem much more open to learning about this, um, but so, you know, as per usual, women have to put the world on their shoulders, tell your husbands, tell your nephews, tell mm-hmm. your sons,
1: it's once a week, it's once a week in the once evening, a week. Ninety minutes in the evenings, you got time. Like don't even. For the even price say, yeah, that you, you would pay
2: for like a personal trainer workout, right? E- like which exactly. remember those?
1: Exactly. Oh God. Where's Shanti? Oof. <laughs> yeah. Their flagship course is the History of American Racism and White Supremacy 101, but they do offer other online courses that you can sign up for. So RootsToRevolution.org. dot org. Take a look. Browse around. Tell your friends. Sign up for a cr- course. Unlearned that whitewashed history you learned in mm. high school and college, and yes. get some get a get a real uh, and challenging and eye-opening education with Roots to Revolution. This episode of Black End was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com.
2: You can find Black and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful,
1: be vigilant, and, and keep, keep asking, asking
2: questions. questions.